Thanks for joining me today for episode 11 of the Northwest Fish Passage podcast. Today, I'm here with Liz Schottman, the Washington Regional Manager at the Surfrider Foundation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's yeah, great to see you and virtually meet you. Yes. So where are you today? I am in Olympia, Washington. Can you tell me about how you got involved in first in conservation and science outreach? I love it. I love the origin stories. Yeah. So I'm originally from Florida. So I grew up sort of like a semi-feral swamp creature on the St. John's River. Um, so just climbing cypress trees and trying not to get eaten by alligators and the like. Um, and so I, I guess my story is probably pretty similar to a lot of people who find themselves in this field. I was very fortunate in having access to some amazing natural areas. And so that instilled in me a lifelong appreciation of those places and a subsequent desire to protect them. And, you know, I've had a pretty amazing life. I've been able to travel and live in a number of different places. And I've always kind of lived near the water um, for most of my life. And it really shaped who I am and what my core values are. And it just kind of floors me that like every major river I've ever lived on, it's not safe to eat too much, you know, too many fish from that river. And every place I've ever snorkeled, a remote beach I've walked on, it's, there's trash. And so it's just seeing the impacts of how we choose to live in this world, like everywhere we go um, and just knowing that there's gotta be a better way. And so just feeling compelled to want to help find those better ways. So what brought you out to the Northwest? <laughs> Love. No, my husband <laughs> and I met in graduate school at the University of Maryland, and he got a job um, working in Hood River, Oregon. And so we got hitched and moved cross country. I'd never been out here. I had no idea what I was getting into. I'm a Florida girl. So I was like, what is this cold, dark place you've moved me to? Where did the sun go? <laughs> uh, but it's so beautiful. Like, it's just a magical place to be. And so I've really embraced the mountains and hiking and have learned so much about streams and salmon. So it's been, it's been a fun adventure. Now, what year was that that you moved? Oh gosh, um, 2015, I think around give or take a year. I'm really bad at like remembering years. It's all a blur. Um, so yeah, we lived in Hood River for a year and then we moved to White Salmon, which is the small town on the other side of the Columbia River um, and lived there for a year. And then he got a job working for DNR up here in Olympia. Um, so we moved to Olympia and we've been here for about three years now and really digging it, really like it. It's a fun little, fun little town. And so what was your first job there in Olympia? Uh, my first job, it took me a while to get a job, <laughs> but um, I, so I still stayed on. I was working for a private company called Kramer Fish Sciences, um, doing a lot of salmon surveys and um, some radio tracking and, and things like that. So a lot of cool projects. So I was still doing some field work and ironically, we had moved up to Olympia, but I was still driving down to White Salmon because that was where our field work was. Um, so that was fun. But then I eventually got a job working for the Department of Ecology, um, doing some stream surveys for a long-term project looking at like temperatures and, and buffers and you know how different buffers affect stream temperatures and things like that. So, um, so that was great, great crew to work with. And then I got a job working for Fish and Wildlife, Washington Fish and Wildlife and doing you know culvert assessments for stream and uh, salmon passage. So got to, got to wade around in some urban, urban streams and 
learn a lot about the challenges that are that our salmon face and trying to get up to somewhere to spawn. The struggle is real for them. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, when did you start at uh, Surfrider? I started April 1st of 2020. So it was a, it was a crazy time to start a new job. But it's been it's been a wild ride, but it's, you know, I'm super fortunate, like Surfrider is just such a great, so many great people I get to work with that are just very inspiring and just so many good things that people are trying to do. And so it's, it's really motivating. And I'm just really grateful to, to have that opportunity to support people in all their efforts to make the world a better place. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners a little about Surfrider and your mission? Sure. So um, our mission is we are a grassroots activist network dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean, waves, and beaches for all people. Um, and so it's we are a nonprofit um, organization that's nationwide. And we also have several international affiliates. Um, and we started in 1984. And uh, it was a group of surfers um, organized in response to development threatening one of their favorite surf beaches. Um, and it just sort of has continued to grow. And now we're a pretty powerful network with over 170 clubs and volunteer run chapters, student clubs and volunteer run chapters, and just working on all sorts of different programs and campaigns. Um, so our work is guided by five of our key initiatives. And so it's plastic pollution, uh, ocean protection, clean water, beach access, and coastal preservation are sort of our guiding initiatives. And then to achieve those initiatives, we have programs, which I can talk about, and campaigns. Um, and so the programs are sort of ongoing efforts to engage volunteers and also raise awareness. And so some of our key programs are our Blue Water Task Force, which is a community science water quality sampling program where volunteers will go out and collect water quality samples um, in marine waters to look for bacterial contamination. Um, and the goal is to sort of fill in the gaps where agencies don't have the resources or ability to, to sample. Um, so here in Washington, we do a lot of like winter sampling when, a, when the beach program, you know, that focuses on summer, summer water quality where people are, you know, most people are in the water, same people are in the water, <laughs> uh, but there are people who still go in, in the winter. So it's good to know what, you know, if the water's safe um, during those off seasons. Another big program we have is our ocean friendly restaurants where we work with the food industry to try to reduce the use of single use plastics or just plastics in general, but single use plastics in the like in the food industry are one of the top, they're consistently like the top 10 items we find in our cleanups. Um, and so working with industry to try to find ways and solutions for them to not use those products, um, which is a really cool program. So we have I think over 40 ocean-friendly restaurants here in Washington state. Um, and it's a program that continues to grow. So Surfrider also has an ocean-friendly gardens program. We don't have one here in Washington yet, but it's sort of just rain gardens because rain gardens are amazing for water quality and carbon sequestration and beautifying our areas. So install a rain garden today. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have like our Rise Above Plastics program, which is sort of like a catch-all that includes like all of our beach cleanups and most chapters do like tabling and outreach when they're doing beach cleanups to teach people about the issue of plastic pollution and marine debris. So those are some of our primary programs, um, but chapters, they can, they can opt to do whatever is relevant to their local communities. And so some chapters pick and choose a couple of those, some do all of them, and some just kind of come up with their their own programs that they run, which is awesome. Um, so for example, our 
Olympic Peninsula chapter up in Port Angeles, they fund and they fund the installation and maintenance of sandy cans. It's like porta potties at public beaches. And so that, you know, so people have a place to go, which is really important for water quality and human health. So yeah, so those are some of the ongoing programs. And then we also have campaigns in which we target a specific goal, like through a decision-making body. And so um, for example, like the bag bill that was passed last year, um, Surf Rider was a pretty strong advocate as well as our a bunch of our core partners in that effort. Um, so that would be a campaign victory. Um, and so that's sort of our metric for success. It's our bread and butter of like, you know, we've had so many coastal victories and any decision that results in sort of a positive conservation outcome or improves coastal access, we consider a campaign victory. So, so yeah. And it's all run by volunteers, which is awesome. It just attracts really passionate, dedicated people who, you know, just are killing it. So it's really exciting to be involved with all of their efforts. So what is one of your favorite projects or programs you're currently working on? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to pick and choose because they're all like the water, you know, the water nerd in me loves the Blue Water Task Force program Mm -hmm. because it's, I love getting people involved in science because I love science. And so I nerd out on that. Um, but I really, I really like the the ocean friendly restaurants program because a lot of you know there are some things that need to be tackled like top down like we need legislative fixes for certain things but <clears throat> that's not the ideal way to go about everything and so I really like the OFR program because you're working with industry to find like solutions that work for them and so we support <clears throat> our restaurants efforts and try to help them identify you know, reusable or um, biodegradable options to replace plastics. And, you know, it's just really, you know, it's like symbiosis, you know, like you're working together to to create solutions on the ground. And I feel like that's incredibly powerful. And I, you know, I'd rather see industry, whether whether it's the restaurant industry or whatever business um, you want to talk about, like, I'd rather see the change grow organically from the bottom up, like, and not have to change the laws and, you know, I'd rather use the carrot than the stick, you know, it's Mm -hmm. all possible. So I really like that program. And it shows like a proof of concept, like it it proves to other restaurants, like we can run our business without these, you know, horrible plastic items that do nobody any good. So, um, so it's great. I like that about that program. So how are the restaurants doing with the pandemic? Oh gosh, it's so rough. It's so rough. So yeah, they're not, they're holding on, you know, my heart goes out to everybody because the restaurant business, I'm not, you know, I haven't been, I, you know, I started out like working at, you know, Pizza Hut and Sonic when I was a kid, but I haven't been involved in the restaurant business, but I have friends that are, and it's just, they run on narrow margins to begin with. And this pandemic has been so hard for them and like the lack of stability and being able to plan effectively because the closures like move, you know, the date moves around, it's just a moving target. And so it's been so rough. And so our chapters have done, you know, everything they can to try to support those OFRs um, during this time by posting pictures of delicious food and, and mm-hmm. keeping everybody informed about like, you know, which, which restaurants are open, what, what services they're offering, like when you can get takeout versus if they have outdoor dining and um, they'll buy um, gift certificates and sort of, you know, give them away or try to incentivize um, people going to those, to those businesses. So it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, they're not supposed to be using using single use plastics, but you know, right now we're not, we're not like checking them, you know, cause they're not allowed to use reusable cups in some cases and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're being very open to the fact that 
we just want them to survive right now. And if that involves using some plastics they have in their inventory, like so be it. Mm -hmm. So with the Blue Water Task Force, do you have, are you doing sampling all over the, the coast? Or? Yeah, so it's wherever the chapters are located. So four of our chapters have a Blue Water Task Force. So the Olympic Peninsula samples one beach, uh, I think monthly throughout the year up in Port Angeles. And then the Olympia chapter has a beach that they sample um, throughout the summer as part of the beach program, uh, Priest Point Park, which is a really great little city park here. Um, and then the Tacoma chapter has a bunch of beaches that they sample. I don't even know off the top of my head how many, but um, they, they, they kill it. Um, and then the, the Northwest Straits chapter up in Bellingham also has quite a few beaches that they sample as well. Um, there's been, you know, obviously some delays. And so I don't know if, I don't think the Northwest Straits chapter is currently sampling because their lab access has been restricted mm. due to COVID. Um, so some, some, um, chapters drop samples off at local labs. They have good partnerships. And so those labs will process the samples and other chapters process them themselves. Um, and so some chapters have more access to continue the program right now. So do they have a standard set of uh, things that they're testing for at the different places? Uh, yeah, so we mostly test for enterococci. Mm -hmm. So looking for bacterial indicators. Um, to see if there's, you know, bacteria, like if it's unsafe. And so, and then we publish that data on our Blue Water Task Force database. So it's um, bwtf.surfrider.org. And you can see a map of what beaches are sampled and what the levels are. And we'll, we'll alert like the Department of Ecology if we see high, high samples. Um, most of our chapters work, work with them. Um, and so we can, you know, let them know if we see a problem and then they can go retest it. And then if that beach continues to be high, then they can put an alert out or shut it down. It's really bad. Well, that's great. So I will include in the show notes a link so that people can check that out. <laughs> and I'm definitely interested to look, look at it more myself. So we were talking about some challenges with COVID right now. What are some other challenges you've been dealing with? With I mean, gosh, COVID, COVID is definitely... <laughs> It trumps everything, but um, you know, from from a grassroots perspective, like looking from the ground up, like behavior change is always like the holy grail of conservation. Like we're so habitual, you know, as as, as we all know, anybody who's ever tried to like start working out or start eating more vegetables or quit a bad habit, it's it's really hard <laughs> to change human behavior. And so, finding ways to do that and help people change those behaviors and ultimately like my goal is to normalize sustainable behaviors because we you know whatever is normal most people will sort of like just go along with and they'll sort of imitate what they see in the greater world around them to a large degree and so if everybody's using plastic cups and plastic straws and things without thinking about it um, or throwing them on the ground like that's a lot of people emulate that behavior but if it becomes abnormal to be using those products like you know, that changing the culture is sort of, you know, it starts with individual habits and individual, be, you know, behavior changes. And so just kind of working at that um, in, in small ways every day is a really powerful thing that every single person can engage in. Um, and then just sharing that so that people see 
that other people are like making these changes and making these efforts. And then, you know, challenges as far as like the big picture perspective, as far as, you know, working on campaigns to, you know, reduce plastic pollution and improve the environment. You know, there's always industry opposition um, because unfortunately a lot of the legislative fixes to a lot of our environmental problems can affect their bottom line. And those companies often have a lot of power. Um, And so, you know, working to, to make that environmental progress, um, that's those are some of the big obstacles that many organizations face when it comes to trying to make those big changes from the top down. So those are my two, the two great challenges I feel like in, in the conservation field, it's individual behavior change and industry opposition. Yeah. Can you tell me more about what you see as some of the biggest successes with this program? And- with with Surfrider and all the different programs? I mean, just the fact that it continues to grow. Like we used to get like a few, you know, a handful of victories here and there. And now we're over 700 victories since we started counting not too long ago. I forget what year we started like actually like counting them and keeping track of everything. But, you know, just seeing, you know, the, the growing wave of people making those changes and engaging in the, you know, and like in the political process and, attending beach cleanups and taking it to the next step to, you know, make, to start those conversations with local businesses or legislators and just seeing, seeing the, like, you know, the tide is starting to change, um, at least from, from where I'm sitting and watching. And so that to me is like the biggest success is just like getting more and more people on board to be like, something has to give, this is not sustainable. Um, The way we're living is not sustainable. And it's rough <laughs> to see every all the problems in the world and it's easy to get overwhelmed and feel like nothing can be done but like when you look out and see all the people working on it you know something can be done and things are being done and so um, to me the biggest success is just like watching our organization just continue to grow and the programs continue to grow and pick up speed um, and momentum is great so and of course you know things like the bag ban and pieces of legislation that it's like, all right, this, you know, it starts, it starts at the local level where people are like, I'm tired of picking up plastic bags on the beach. I see them everywhere. This is, this is horrible. And so then they go to their city council and they're like, let's just not have these in our city. And then another city hops on board and then another, and then, you know, those cities can go to the state and be like, look, we did it. You can do it. Um, And so that sort of, you know, grassroots change is, you know, what gives me hope. Mm -hmm. And what are, um, some other things that you're most hopeful about in, in upcoming years? Uh, the in, Having a new administration right now um, that's more focused on environment and science-based solutions is a welcome change. And so I am hopeful that our new leadership will do what it can to kind of make up for some lost time on things like fighting climate change and environmental injustice and things like that. So we're hoping to hold our leaders accountable but I'm hopeful that some progress will be made because I, like, I think the people are going to demand it, hopefully. And I, you know, like I said, I think we're reaching a tipping point in our society. Like climate change is here. We're all feeling it. Plastic trash is everywhere. Every major river is polluted and causing human health problems. And so as much as all of that is alarming and depressing, it's also really inspiring to see like people are, they're awake, they're aware, you know? And so I'm hopeful that with this national focus on, you know, the intersectionality of environmental justice and all these other problems that we have, you know, I feel like we're, we're at a point where we are realizing the connections and the power of working together 
to address all these issues because they're all so interrelated and so connected. And so, so yeah, I'm really hopeful for the future. And, you know, it's just an unfortunate human trait that we tend to come together and rise up like in the face of the worst tragedies. And so that's what I'm hoping for is that hero story of, you know, at the, at the 11th hour, when things were bleak, we all sort of joined forces and, and figured it out. So that's what I'm hoping for every day. <laughs> and what advice do you have for people that are interested in conservation and science outreach careers? Oh, such a good question. God, I have so many mistakes I've made that I can share. <laughs> um, I would definitely say like travel, travel when you can, because traveling just opens your eyes to new perspectives for sure. Don't be afraid to be a hardcore dabbler. I feel like there's a lot of pressure in many sciences to sort of specialize. And I'm more of a generalist, like I'm like the rat of conservation. I like do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> Take advantage of every opportunity to experience something new, work on a project, you know, learn a new tool, mess with a new piece of gear. Um, every, every one of those experiences kind of opens your mind to things and um, increases the chances of like those aha moments. So don't be afraid to, to dabble hardcore. And I would definitely like, I've done a lot in education and never, and always try to emphasize, you know, learn how to learn and learn how to keep learning um, because the days of just graduating from school and, coasting are over. You have to constantly reinvent yourself. And so find a way to make learning fun and exciting. Um, and one of the best ways I've found is to teach. It's way more fun to learn with the, uh, with the goal to teach somebody something, whether mm -hmm. that's a classroom of students or, you know, uh, other people in your organization, or even just like your family, you know, learn something, but then communicate that knowledge to them is, is a really valuable experience. Um, and then finally, I would just say, take time to reflect. I don't, I've, I, that's something I've not done a lot in my career. Um, I just sort of plowed ahead from one cool opportunity to another, just <laughs> bouncing around, having a good time, having great experiences. And um, it worked out for me. I love my life. I love my job. I'm so grateful for everything I have. I probably could have gotten here a lot sooner <laughs> if I'd taken the time to be like, do I really love pure science? Because I realized that I, I don't, it's not really my niche, you know, like I really love advocacy and outreach and working with volunteers. Like I love everything I do with my job now, um, but I didn't stop to think about what really makes me tick mm -hmm. in school or in my jobs. I was like, this is a thing I can do. I don't hate it. You know, like I get to play with fish or alligators or something. So, so yeah, I would say take time to pause and think about what really drives you because it's not always obvious. It's very easy to sort of get distracted about what people tell you you think you should want to do. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask those deeper questions and like take time to like go out in nature and, and listen to the answers kind of thing because I did not and it probably cost me a good amount of time in my career <laughs> to find who I am. <laughs> oh, but you learned lots of stuff along the way. Oh yeah, no regrets, no regrets. So what about um, for... Somebody listening to this that's interested in getting more involved with um, Surfrider, can you talk about the different ways they can get involved? Oh, totally. So there's, like I said, there's a lot of different prog um, programs that you can work on. So whatever floats your boat, if it's beach access or clean water or fighting plastic pollution or working with industry or advocating with your legislators, there's a lot of different 
opportunities as well as just like sort of the nuts and bolts of making chapters run. So if you have technical skills with websites or communication skills, or you love social media or making cool graphics uh, or videos, like there's so many things, there's so many ways to address these issues. And so whatever skill set you have or want to develop, um, we, can, we can find a way to sort of channel that energy um, and inspiration into the work we do. Um, so to get involved, <clears throat> there is a map. So we have five chapters here in Washington. Um, there's one in Bellingham, Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, and uh, the peninsula. And so you can go to those, um, washington.surfrider.org has, and I'll give you all these links, has a list of those chapters and you can go to their website and sign up for their newsletter. Um, you can also sign up for our regional newsletter that we send out um, from the Washington staff, uh, myself and my partner, Gus Gates, who is the policy manager. Um, so definitely subscribe to those newsletters. Uh, consider becoming a member. It's like 25 bucks a year. Um, and the membership dues go a long way to support the chapters and the work that we do. Um, other ways you can get involved is just reach out to your chapter. Send them an email and be like, hey, I'm, I'm interested. I have time. I really want to help. Um, and the level of commitment that you're willing and able to, to offer up, you know, every little bit helps. Great. Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to um, put out all that information and hopefully get some new volunteers. Yeah, I've been to some of the beach cleanups and um, nice. that's how I heard about you. Um, so anything else you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I mean, I just, I like to end on, end on like positive notes and solutions when I can, because the conservation field is, there's a lot of doom and gloom and sadness. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's important that we shift our culture away from extractive consumerism and towards sustainability and stewardship. And so we can all shift that narrative of what is socially acceptable behavior by leading by example and not, not accepting the unsustainable status quo, you know, so you can do your part to sort of change the norm of what, what we want to allow in our culture as far as how we treat our environment. And, and solutions are, are nigh. So I like to kind of remind people, because I know I get a little down looking at news because it's a lot of negative stuff out there that, um, you know, our mindset, we have like a lot of like negative bias, like just wired into our brains. Like that's what we focus on. But if you sort of zoom out and look at the bigger picture, there's a lot of really good things that happen in the world that are happening in the world. And as a, as a society globally, we've we've made a lot of progress towards justice and towards environmental stewardship. We actually have, you know, we have a long ways to go, but um, there's so much good out there and you just kind of have to go look for it because it's usually not covered in, in the news. Um, but, but yeah, go find your inspiration um, and use it to, to motivate you. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been great. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing you out on the beach and yeah. getting to more events. <laughs> I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review and tell a friend. Have a great day.